In Wisconsin today, thousands waiting for hours, forced to choose between protecting their own health and exercising their right to vote. Those lines are long in Wisconsin, despite the state's safer at home order. This is so wrong. This is just so wrong. This, this election should have been called off. On Tuesday, April 7th, voters in Wisconsin cast their ballots in the 2020 presidential primary. Keep in mind, this was just a few weeks into the mass shutdowns across the country. Wisconsin's primary was a huge test of what it means to vote during a pandemic. It was marked by PPE and hand sanitizer, but also fewer than usual poll workers, long lines, and fear. Because there wasn't enough testing, contact tracing, and information, it's not clear whether that primary caused a surge in COVID-19 cases. But it did cause a surge in something else. This primary, more than 60% of Wisconsin voters did so by mail which is a huge increase. Wisconsin voting officials say, historically, only about 6% of votes cast in Wisconsin are cast by mail. This pandemic has led to increased support, not just in Wisconsin, but across the country for voting by mail. In fact, according to a recent poll from Pew Research Center, 70% of Americans say everyone should get to do this. But this week, we've heard a lot of back and forth, especially among politicians, about whether it's a good idea. So today we're going to get into what exactly vote by mail is and how it works and why voting rights advocates say it's important. Stick around. Okay, so people have been voting by mail in the U.S. since the Civil War, when soldiers were allowed to mail their ballots home from the battlefield. And in recent decades, it's become a more popular option. In fact, during the 2016 election, nearly one in four Americans voted by mail or absentee ballot, which can sometimes be done in person ahead of election day. Whether you're able to vote by mail really depends on where you live. States decide the rules here. In 16 states, voting by mail means requesting an absentee ballot and giving an excuse or a reason why you can't otherwise head to the polls. Sometimes it's because you're physically not capable of getting there, or you'll be out of town. In 34 states, plus Washington, D.C., you don't need an excuse. You just need to plan a few weeks ahead, apply for a ballot, fill it out, and send it back. This is also called no-excuse absentee voting. Some states just send you a ballot, rather than wait for you to apply. And some take it even further. For example, in Oregon, voting by mail is your only option. In fact, Oregonians have been voting by mail exclusively for about the last two decades. Proponents say it's cheaper for states to count votes this way, and that it's more secure, as in fewer faulty or vulnerable voting machines, and that it increases the number of people who vote at all. Because it's a lot easier to vote on your own schedule than on the states. 1.4 democracy. And that's part of why you're hearing a ton about vote by mail these days. My name is Mirna Perez, and I'm director of the Voting Rights and Elections Program for the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU School of Law. The Brennan Center is a nonpartisan, nonprofit law and policy think tank that aims to reform institutions across the country. Perez heads up the Voting Rights Program, which aims to get rid of any hurdles voters might have that prevent them from having their voice heard. That includes expanding options and increasing safety for in-person voting, especially for communities in which the mail system is unreliable. But it also means giving more Americans more opportunities to vote by mail. 
We are in the middle of a global pandemic and people are leading extraordinarily complicated lives where they are trying to juggle uh, an enormous amount of pressures, including how they're going to educate their kids, how they're going to feed their families, how they're going to keep people safe. And vote by mail is an option that every American should have in order to make sure that they don't have to choose between their fundamental right to vote and keeping them and them, their families safe. Most of the country has widespread access to vote by mail, but there are some states that limit who is able to use vote by mail and under what circumstances. We think it is indisputable that at the moment we are in right now, every eligible American should be able to cast a ballot from their home. Some states are already changing their ways. Usually in California, you have to fill out an application and ask for your no excuses ballot. This year, California is sending every voter a ballot. No need to apply, just here you go, please don't leave home. But this change has caused a lot of consternation, particularly from Republicans. For context, there's a long-held idea that increased voter participation helps Democrats over Republicans. That making it easier to vote means it's easier for people who support Democrats to vote. That theory has been put to rest by some recent studies, which say vote by mail doesn't favor either party. But that hasn't stopped President Trump and Attorney General Bill Barr from making this latest argument that vote by mail increases the chance for voter fraud. And it's not just the president saying things. This week, his re-election campaign sued state and county election officials across Pennsylvania, arguing that changes to voting laws to help give people more options during the pandemic are too lax and could lead to voter fraud. The head of the state Democratic Party calls this a tactic to prevent people from voting. Experts say instances of voter fraud are rare, not to mention the fact that committing fraud can result in serious punishment, including possible prison time, and that although voter fraud is a bit more common with mail-in ballots, again, those instances are extremely rare. It is preposterous to be opposed to vote by mail, especially in the moment that we're in right now. Much of the country allows many of its voters to already vote by mail. We're not talking about a system that was created out of whole cloth. What instead we're talking about is expanding access so that a system that already exists is available to every American that needs it. But there's a lot more work that needs to be done to make sure that system is up and ready. For example, like we said, during the Wisconsin primary, a record number of people voted by mail. But as Wisconsin scrambled to keep up with the increased demand, thousands of voters also never received their ballots, forcing them to either show up to the polls anyway or just decide not to vote. The same thing happened in New York City last month, as New York attempted to keep up with the demand of voters applying for absentee ballots. One of the big challenges we're seeing right now is that even in states where voters have access to vote by mail, there are sometimes instances when the election administrators don't have the capacity to deal with the increased volume, where more people are requesting vote-by-mail ballots than had done so before, so they don't have 
the back office systems for getting them processed in time and getting them to voters. Um, that's a question of preparedness and that's a question of resources. The Brennan Center has called for Congress to send $4 billion to local and state officials to make sure all eligible voters can participate in this year's election. So far, Congress has passed $400 million to boost election resources, but advocates are still pushing for more. In the meantime, some state and local officials are pushing to loosen up voting laws to make sure residents have the ability to safely vote during the pandemic. It's still TBD on whether these new options will be available for voters, not just during the primary, but again in November. But remember, a lot of this depends on where you live. And if those options do stay in place the rest of the year, state and local officials have a lot of work to do to make sure they're ready and to make sure voters have all the information they need. So what's the scam? This election season, more and more Americans are finding that they must choose between their health, their family's health, and their right to vote. Luckily, most states plus D.C. either offer or have expanded their current mail-in options for voters because of the pandemic. But a couple, including the second most populous state, Texas, haven't expanded mail-in options. And these are the kinds of policies that concern voting rights experts. We are at a unique moment in time where standing in line to vote could be dangerous for certain Americans. And when we are appropriately talking about a response to the coronavirus, all credible experts think that vote by mail is part of the solution. It's not the only solution, but that's part of the solution because our elections are too important for us to be shutting some voters out. Experts say it's also key that states that are offering these expanded options get the money they need to effectively carry these elections out. That part is still TBD. Our states and local election administrators have a big job in front of them that is going to be harder if they don't have the resources and support that they need. There are going to be glitches. There are going to be challenges. And that is why it's so critically important to have more than one uh, available voting method. That's why we can't just move entirely to vote by mail. We need to make sure that we have polling places. We need each of the different methods of voting to be able to to be a fail-safe or a backup plan if something goes wrong. My hope is that resources will come to election administrators really soon so that they can get ready. But we all are going to have to step in the breach. We're all going to have to pressure state and local politicians to provide resources. We may all need to volunteer to be poll workers to be able to help. We all may need to uh, share education and information with our fellow voters to make sure that people know what the, uh, what the policy is and how what steps they should be taken. And we're all going to need to be patient on Election Day, withstand the challenges that are uh, being put in front of us, because this election is going to be one that I think is, is different than this country has seen in recent memory. Keeping track of how your state or territory is changing laws, not just during the pandemic, but for the year, is key. Stay informed not just on the issues in this year's election, but also what your options are for voting, for the primary and also November. For more on the road to 2020, head to skim2020.com.
There being 232 votes in the affirmative, 180 votes in the negative. Last Friday, the House of Representatives passed legislation that would increase the number of stars on the American flag from 50 to 51. For the first time, members approved a bill that would make the capital of the United States, Washington, D.C., its own state. Right now, it's a federal district, basically a region within a country that typically houses the national government and is directly controlled by it. The bill says that while federal buildings like the White House would still be federal property, everything else would be part of this new state. And instead of the District of Columbia, it would be called the Washington Douglas Commonwealth, named after abolitionist Frederick Douglass. In theory, it doesn't take that much to create a new state. Basically, the House, Senate, and the President all have to be on board. But D.C.'s history as a federal district is complicated. To explain, we have to go back to the 1700s. During the American Revolution, the Continental Congress didn't have a permanent home. The Continental Capitol bounced around from New York to Philly. And then, as the result of a compromise between southern and northern states, they met in the middle. Literally. In 1790, President George Washington picked a spot for the nation's capital along the Potomac River, and it was named the District of Columbia. And the Founding Fathers wanted the receipts. They wrote into the Constitution that D.C. should be a federal city. Article 1, Section 8, Clause 17, to be exact. They said otherwise, Congress and the White House could be too influenced by the state government in which it lived. The trade-off, though, was that D.C. residents lost their representatives in Congress and in the Electoral College. This wasn't something people just let slide. In fact, someone in Congress has fought for D.C. to become a state every year since 1965. Remember no taxation without representation from history class? That's when Americans under British rule demanded representatives across the pond in exchange for their tax dollars in the 1700s. And you can still find that slogan on D.C. license plates in 2020 because district residents pay federal taxes, but they don't get to elect representatives with power to represent their interests in the federal government. Instead, they have a local government. But even that is still subject to federal control through something called home rule. By invoking home rule, Congress can actually block any law local officials or residents support. Some things have changed since 1790, though. In its 230 years of taxation without representation, the D.C. population has grown to over 700,000 people. That's larger than the populations of some states, including Vermont and Wyoming. And thanks to the 23rd Amendment, district residents now at least get to vote for president and have their vote counted. D.C. has three votes in the Electoral College. But advocates argue three electoral votes is not enough. And they've faced opposition, in large part from Republicans in Congress. That's because Washington, D.C. residents have voted overwhelmingly for Democratic presidential candidates. So the concern is, if you make it a state, Dems will get more of an upper hand in Congress moving forward. Like we said, this is a fight that's come up pretty much every year for decades. But this year, the fight for D.C. to become a state has stayed in the spotlight. That's partly because of the recent protests over racial injustice. In D.C., the Trump administration has sent federal officers to clear protesters from the streets. 
Here was D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser on PBS last month. We're the capital city. We're a federal district. We're 700,000 tax-paying Americans. Uh, and I'm the mayor, governor, county executive all at once. Um, but because we are not a state, um, the federal government can encroach on our autonomy. Those recent clashes between D.C. protesters and federal officers have raised more questions about whether it's fair for the federal government to have so much say in how the city operates. Advocates also argue that the fight for D.C. to become a state is a civil rights issue. The majority of the district residents are people of color, which means Washington, D.C. is one clear-cut example of a place in which Black Americans are being denied representation. So, D.C. statehood passing in the House last week was historic. But to be clear, it's not likely to pass the Republican-controlled Senate. And President Trump has also said he opposes the idea, which means this bill will probably go nowhere. But if the balance of power changes in Washington in November, it could be back on the table again. And other U.S. territories vying for statehood, like Puerto Rico, home to more than 3 million Americans, could also have a shot at finally becoming part of the Union. Happy Fourth of July! Before we go, as you figure out what to watch this holiday weekend, we want to tell you about a new documentary that's described as a love letter to Black women from Black women. For decades, all we wanted was to be accepted and visible instead of invisible. It's called Invisible Portraits. It's the directorial debut from Ogi Ebuno and was released this year on Juneteenth, months earlier than expected. As a society, like we're in this space right now of collective healing and also collective re-education. And I think that this documentary serves as a tool for re-education on American history as well as Black women's history. And so it just made sense to move it up. And when I was thinking of, you know, what day to move it up to, I mean, there was no other better day than the day that celebrates Black freedom to do it on a day that also celebrates Black women. Over several months, Abuno worked 14 hours a day, 16 days a week, researching for the documentary. It was a challenging process, though, and one that took a toll on Abuno. In the development phase, in the research and development phase, it was difficult on me emotionally and mentally. Like, I had to get back into therapy because to hold the stories of Black women being raped or to hold the stories of reading slave narratives of girls at the age of nine being raped and then impregnated at 10, reading stories of a woman watching her whole entire family be lynched right in front of her. To hold those stories were very, very difficult for me. Invisible Portraits gives viewers context to things like the forced sterilization of Black women, the dehumanizing labels of Mammy, Jezebel, Welfare Queen, and Angry. I do begin to assert myself. If I begin to stand in my own truth, oh, she's aggressive, she's angry, she's violent. She's out of control. That's all you are, is an angry black woman. I mean, there's angry white women, there's angry Spanish women. I mean, there's angry women. You know, why does it have to be the black woman, angry black woman? We don't have dibs on it. But even though the film covers a lot of traumatic history, it also explores the ideas of faith, healing, and resilience. Black women can do anything. We can make a meal out of nothing. We can make music out of sorrow, right? 
We can write our feelings and it becomes a poem. We can transform pain into laughter. Maybe it's more than creativity. Maybe it's magic. Maybe that's the black girl magic, right? Black woman magic, because I'm not a girl. Life has either come through us or life has come to us, and we've been charged with shaping these lives, and that is miraculous and divine. Abuno is now hoping to expand her film into a docuseries and is working to create a curriculum around it for schools and universities. Invisible Portraits is available to watch now on Vimeo On Demand, and you can learn more at InvisiblePortraits.com. Oh, and if you're looking to explore these issues even more, she's got a great list of recommendations. Any and all things written by Audre Lorde. Any and all things written by Bell Hooks. Any and all things written by Patricia Hill Collins. Post-traumatic slave syndrome written by Dr. Joy DeGruy. Race after technology written by Ruha Benjamin. Algorithms of, of oppression written by Sophia Noble. Killing the Black Body written by Dorothy Roberts. Medical Apartheid, written by Harriet Washington. Legacies of Lynching, The History of White People, which is written by um, Nell Urban Painter. I mean, and that's just, I mean, I'll let you start with that, but those, any of those books will rearrange you in the most powerful and transformative way. And that's all for Skim This. We'll be back in your feed next Friday. In the meantime, let us know what questions you have about what's going on in the news right now. You can email us at audioattheskim.com or call and leave us a voicemail at 646-461-6370. And don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For more Skim and to sign up for our daily newsletter, head on over to theskim.com.